they're people who want to go back into the workforce at the same level that they had before they left to have a child. They want the challenge. They often have a lot of skills that younger people don't, and they have a really, really clear incentive to make this work so that they can have lives in which they're able to do interesting work and also to be parents. Welcome to the Leaders with Babies podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. I believe it is not okay that today in the UK, if you have children and want to care for them, it really impacts on your chances of career progression. But together, I believe we can change this. So with this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship program, I want to give you access to inspiration and practical support to continue to progress your career whilst enjoying your young family. You can take the first step to join a network of like-minded fellows from all sectors by registering today on www.leadersplus.org.uk forward slash register interest. That's www.leadersplus.org.uk forward slash register interest. Applications for our fellowship will open very soon and you will get a senior leader mentor, access to thought leadership about what works for parents and careers, and of course, the all-important space to think in a structured environment in a supportive peer group of ambitious leaders with babies and leaders with young children. So today I'm interviewing Alex Pang. He is the author of the book Shorter. We talk about why you get done more when you work less. We talk about how to set boundaries and why parents are often the most productive people out there. One of Alex's big ideas is that a four-day work week is what is going to change the future. And actually, he's done a huge amount of research to show that four-day work weeks make people more productive and also make companies get a lot more income. So this episode is definitely one of my favorite yet. I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Very warm welcome, Alex, to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Why don't we introduce the video introducing yourself and your story? Okay. First off, it's great to be with you too. So I appreciate the invitation. So my name is Alex Pong and I'm the author of a new book called Shorter, How Working Less Will Revolutionize the Way Your Company Gets Things Done. Or I think that's the pretty exact title. Anyway, the book is about how companies have moved to four-day work weeks or other kinds of shorter work weeks without reducing salaries, without cutting productivity or profitability. And it builds on a book that I published a couple of years ago about the hidden role of rest in the lives of really creative and productive people. And I've been interested in the last few years in the relationship between work and rest and creativity. And so my previous book explored the science behind that, talked about the role that rest and hobbies played in the lives of politicians and Nobel Prize winners and famous writers. And the new book explains how companies have been putting the ideas into practice themselves and have been doing so for everybody mm. by moving to you know four-day weeks to six-hour days, sometimes even a five-hour days, usually in industries where overwork and long hours are seen as just a fact of life. Places like yeah. design firms or software companies or, or restaurants or nursing homes around the world mm. in 
the UK and Europe and the US, but also in Japan and Korea, two countries whose languages have their own words for working yourself to death. And so I think this is a global movement that is only just becoming aware of itself. And it turns out to have lots of benefits, not just for individuals in terms of improving their work-life balance and their ability to take care of themselves and and others, but also lots of benefits for companies and changes the way that they think about work and time and productivity in ways that are entirely positive. So that's who I am and what I do. Mm, fantastic. And you do have children as well who are grown up now, don't you? Yes, I do. I have one is 21 and the other is 18. One is already in college and the other is going to go off this fall to one of the strangest academic years in recent memory. Mm, indeed, indeed. It was really interesting. So before we started, we had a quick chat and you mentioned how actually this coronavirus period really changes our basic assumptions about how we work and what is possible. And that really does resonate with me. So my parents were entrepreneurs, so I always wanted to become an entrepreneur. Mm. And uh, I always thought you had to work extra, extra hard because I had this idea in my mind of someone in Silicon Valley, you know, working crazy hours. And then I went onto the Cambridge Social Ventures program, which is a support program for aspiring social entrepreneurs. And what was really interesting, the lady who runs it, Belinda Bell, I should say Dr. Belinda Bell, she changed my assumption because she started up and ran several companies. And she told me I've never, ever worked full time on any of them. Not to say that you don't have to work full time, but it just, it really resonated with me. And when I read your book, I just loved that Well, one, you brought the research to it, and I I love it when there is evidence based behind stuff, but also you gave the arguments behind implementing those changes. But actually, coming back to something you said earlier, you talked about rest at the beginning. And can you just say briefly a bit more about why rest matters? And I'm saying this as a mother with two young kids, and in our household, we don't have one company, but two. Both my partner and I are running our own social enterprises, completely unrelated. So we're pretty busy. We don't have a lot of rest. But the idea of rest still did uh, resonate with me. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Sure. So the basic idea is that we think of work and rest as competitors or locked in a sort of zero-sum game, right? And that particularly for people who are ambitious, who are starting companies, or are engaged in other kinds of really serious enterprises or want to do really good work, that rest is something you have to give up in order to achieve your goals. It is in a way either a distraction or an impediment and likewise that the amount of work that you do and how much you give up on its behalf are not only signs of your diligence and passion, but there is also a kind of moral virtue behind Mm, overwork. So true. And the argument of the book is that first of all, the idea of overwork as a virtue is for all of its familiarity and apparent inescapability and inevitability, a very, very modern thing. The statistical correlation between how successful you are, how much money you make, and how many hours you work, and that the more successful you are or the more higher paid profession you're in, the more hours you work, is something that only came about maybe in the last 20 or 30 years or so. It used to be that 
greater amounts of leisure were one of the things that were a consequence of, and indeed one of the great benefits of success, right? As you become more successful, you have more leisure time, you're able to delegate tasks to others, and you're able to enjoy life more. This for a long time seemed like the natural progression of things. And that broke, I would say, about 30 years ago or so for a couple of reasons. And one of them was that our idea of who becomes successful and how changed rather dramatically, right? With the rise of Silicon Valley and sort of Wall Street, of venture capital and the startup world, the idea of success was no longer one that was bound up to a vision of starting out in a company spending 30 years working your way up, paying your dues, and finally reaching the top. Success was something that happened very quickly if you worked titanically long hours before either the market turned down or your technical skills became obsolete. I think that the number of magazines or business websites that have these lists of 30 people under 30 to watch Mm. is, I think, deeply illustrative of the idea that success is essentially a speed race. It's a sprint. It's a race against your own obsolescence. And that at a certain point, you lose the capacity to do the work at that speed necessary to be a success in the modern world. We also, of course, live in a world in which everything else seems to have gotten faster, right? Markets are faster. Travel is faster. We carry our offices around in our pockets. And so it feels like it is harder to take time to reflect. We're in positions where we constantly need to be responsive. We are expected to be always on and and always available. And my book argues that these things actually are counterproductive, that you can make the case that possibly early on in one's career, when you have a steep learning curve, when you're single, that there are things that you can learn more quickly when you put in that kind of time and see work that way. But the benefits evaporate fairly early on in your career. Furthermore, what really successful people do, what incredibly creative people do is usually after some kind of health crisis or burnout or something, discover that those kinds of hours actually aren't necessary to do the kind of work that they're really passionate about. Mm. What they discover is that in their daily lives, they can actually get more done by layering periods of intensive focused work with what I call in the book deliberate rest, activities that are physically engaging, that are mentally diverting, and which both give them time to recover the physical or psychological energy that you spend on deep focused work, but also provide an opportunity for their creative minds or subconscious to continue turning around problems. Now, I was just laughing because since I've come across your work, so basically I live under the assumption that I don't have time, as Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people do. Anyways, so just in the last two or three days, I started playing the guitar again after putting Mm -hmm. the kids to bed, which actually has the benefit that one, my toddler goes to sleep quite well when they hear the guitar, which Mm -hmm. is a massive bonus. And two, there is, you know, as you say, you do feel much more rested. I think I still need to succeed and then not going back on my emails after playing the guitar, but that's a good progress. One thing I'm noticing with the parents that I'm working with is that so many of them 
orphan women coming back from maternity leave, they have been out of it for a little while, which is absolutely fine, then feel that they have to work extra hard to prove themselves again. But you are mm-hmm. saying, actually, that is counterproductive because you are taking away that rest to do the deep thinking and actually prioritizing yourself and giving yourself that deep rest really helps you to do the bigger creative thinking, to do the type of thinking that is necessary if you want to become a Nobel Prize winner in science. Not to say that all of us have to become a Nobel Prize winner of science, but basically you're saying it is the wrong choice to go and work extra hard to prove yourself after something like a maternity leave. Yeah, I think that for me, people like Nobel Prize winners or Ernest Hemingway, they are for me the career or cognitive equivalents of Usain Bolt or Serena Williams, right? I will never run as fast as Usain Bolt, but there still are things you can learn about running or training from Olympians that can improve your own life and practice. And as to the case with working mothers coming back to work, I think, first of all, that overwork is counterproductive for anybody. But, you know, I think that particularly for parents coming back into the workforce, it is doubly so because you are trying to do a couple incredibly difficult things, right? I think that we tend to often publicly downplay or underestimate just how physically demanding and exhausting parenting is. One of the things that we all do in the workplace is craft this image of ourselves as the ideal worker, a person who has no external commitments, who puts work first, who is constantly engaged with what they're doing, and whose greatest joy in life is to do yet more work. Mm. And I think one of the things that you know the pandemic has revealed, and all of us being on Zoom calls has revealed, is just how much work goes into managing that illusion and how illusory it actually is. So I think that is, I hope, one good thing that will come out of the pandemic. But I think that we all should recognize that maintaining that self-image, maintaining that public image, particularly when you have young parents, is itself requires quite a lot of work. The other thing that I think I would point out is that we live in a world in which particularly mothers are expected to work as if they don't have kids, to raise children and be parents as if they don't have jobs, to do both of those things simultaneously. And who thought that was a good idea? And to do these to a never well-defined but impossibly high standard. And then finally, to tell them that if they don't succeed at both of these things at once, it's their fault. It's not the fault of the system. And I think one of the most important things we can recognize is that actually it is the fault of the system. Part of what you're doing is a huge amount of labor to make up for flaws and weaknesses in the way in which workplaces and careers are designed today. And just as sometimes we have had to stay late or take work home on the weekends because we've had a boss who didn't think through all the implications of a schedule when they committed, and now we have to make up for order for all of that work. So too does the culture of overwork and the need to present ourselves as ideal workers reflect work that we have to do in order to make up for bad design in our careers in capitalism. So yeah, it's an awful lot of work, but it's not a lot of work because you're not good at it. 
it's a lot of work because you're fighting against a system that makes it almost impossibly hard to do all of these different things in a way that is sustainable and that's rewarding. And one of the things that the four-day week allows is a way out of that. Not a complete solution necessarily, but certainly a way for companies to work and a way for companies to think about work and time that is far better than the system under which most of us have to operate today. End of rant. Mm. So the common assumption is that working harder, longer means better output, but you found that that's not true. Can you tell us more about what happened to organizations who have implemented the four-day week? Sure. We've actually known for a century that humans and organizations are good at bursts of overwork, lasting maybe a few weeks at the most. But when you require overwork constantly, what happens is that people burn out faster, they make more mistakes that often require yet more overtime to correct. And also organizations as a whole perform worse. And this is something that we see not just with knowledge work, but in factories and hospitals and all kinds of places. Mm. Yeah, I recently learned that uh, GPs in England, apparently a lot of them work part time. It's incredibly common. And I can imagine that in a role like this, that is so pressurized. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to not work full time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned about, you know, Japan and South Korea, didn't you? And my assumption was always that those countries were working unbelievable hours, but there were some organizations that have gone down to four-day work week in those countries, weren't there? Even there, yes. In fact, one of the biggest companies that I found that has reduced its working hours is an e-commerce company in Korea called Wuwa Brothers. They do online deliveries, kind of like DoorDash in the US. And they employ about 2,000 or so people. They're a 10-year-old company. They're worth more than $2 billion now. And since 2015, they have been systematically reducing their working hours. So they now work a, I believe, a 35-hour work week spread over about four and a half days. So they're not quite at four days. On the other hand, they're not working seven days, which is what they were working before and which is fairly common in software startups in Korea and Japan. So it is even in countries like that where we're seeing companies adopt this. You know, it's not just Scandinavia and the Netherlands and the UK. Hmm. Interesting. And where they have shortened working hours to four days, you say the productivity has gone up most of the time. Is that right? Or is it that there are some outliers where it hasn't gone up? Yes to both. There are a couple places that have maintained four-day weeks, even though productivity has gone down a little bit, but they are outliers. I know of it's literally two or three companies out of more than 100 that I talk about in the book. In most companies, what you do when you move to four-day weeks is you don't, first of all, try to do less work, right? You don't just chop a day off the schedule. You do a certain amount of kind of redesigning the workday. So you identify inefficiencies, you find ways of using technology in ways that augment people's ability to do their best work. You make a lot of little changes in culture and daily practice that allow people to be more focused when they're working and therefore allow them to get more stuff done, right? I think what all of these companies find is that three or four really focused hours allow people to do more work than they would in eight or 10 semi-distracted hours. 
And so you know, they all do things like make meetings a lot shorter or eliminate those hour-long weekly all-hands meetings that are so common in many organizations and are not really that productive. Others will redesign the flow of the workday so that everybody has periods when it's okay to not answer the phone or to be a little bit antisocial and to focus on really important tasks. And just by doing those kinds of things, not spending a lot of money, not completely upending the way that you work, these companies find that they're able to boost productivity enough so that they're able to do in four days the work that they did in five. In a couple other industries, sometimes it's also the case that there is already a rhythm in which Friday is kind of a slow day. So in a call center that I looked at in Glasgow, for example, they found that already 90% of their sales were being made Monday through Thursday. And Fridays, more people are taking time off. There's simply fewer sales opportunities on Fridays. And so by boosting their productivity a little bit Monday through Thursday, they were able to maintain the same level of productivity and profitability while giving a day back to everybody. Likewise, in PR and marketing, Friday is kind of a slow day. You never publish good news on a Friday. You always do bad news. And so advertising agencies find that they're able to drop a day of the week in response to that kind of rhythm. And so yeah. basically the four-day week turns out to be closer at hand, cheaper to implement than we might expect and that we have traditionally been led to expect. Mm. So a lot of our fellows do work four days a week and some get paid for five days and some get paid for four days, but they all say their productivity increases. What sometimes is the barrier is that their employers will say, well, actually, no, we need you there for clients on a Friday, or actually, we are worried that a senior role can't be done in four days. What, what is your view on that? Okay. So first off, on the client side, there is this default assumption that you can't make these changes because clients today need you to be always on and always available. This is one of the biggest objections or fears that when I talk to companies that have made the transition that they worried about at the beginning. And what they all tell me is that when you explain it to clients, clients actually are sometimes the biggest supporters of this, mainly because they themselves are dealing with problems of work-life balance and overwork and you know, juggling careers and family. And if you are able to figure out how to solve these problems, then that's great for them because you're essentially trialing things that they themselves might be able to adopt. I think it's also the case that the market and clients are often a little bit less aware of your every move than you like to think. There was a big consulting company in Boston that trialed giving everybody in one consulting division Wednesday evenings off. So you didn't have to answer email or talk to clients or so forth. The senior partners thought that this was going to be horrible. You know, the earth was going to spin off its axis and crash into the sun and all the clients were going to hate it. Six months later, they surveyed the clients and nobody had actually noticed that their messages on Wednesdays weren't getting returned. And so I think what that teaches us is that while there is benefit to the idea that you know you don't want to ignore your clients, you don't have to be 
a slave to your phone. You don't have to be always on in order to do good work for them and to be responsive to their needs. And then on the leadership side, I think that actually one of the biggest reasons that these companies move to four-day weeks is that leaders need it. And I think that as you well know, and as many of your listeners know, starting and running a company, being a founder is enormously hard work. And in most of the companies that I have looked at, this journey to a four-day week starts with some kind of crisis at the top, right? The founder is worried about burning out. They might have had a health emergency or there was something else that made them take stock and decide that they need to make a change because if they don't, in two or three years, everything is going to come crashing down. They also are at a point in their careers where they have families, they have other things that are calling for their time, and they are experienced enough to see how work as it's usually practiced actually doesn't work. And they feel like they know how they can make it better. They know how they can solve these problems. And so you put all of those things together and leaders, far from being an impediment to the four-day week, likewise become its champions. Mm, Interesting. So just thinking of one of our listeners who hears this and says, I want to, in my meeting, which is coming up next week with my CEO, I want to raise this as something to explore. What would be the most important thing she or he can say to that CEO to get them convinced to look into the idea? Well, I think the first thing that I would say is that there are companies in all kinds of industries all over the world that have done this without cutting salaries, without reducing productivity or profitability. So there is a big body of evidence that shows that it is possible. And I think also a number of books mine for one, the book by Andrew Barnes about his experience with Perpetual Guardian, and a book by Pernil Abilgard about the four-day week in Denmark that shows how companies actually go about making this happen. The next thing I would say is that particularly in an era where people are starting to come back to work, where we're still worried about coronavirus, where in the United States at least, we're not even out of the first wave of infections, that we need to think about how to reopen businesses safely and how to position them so that they can be more resilient and more adaptable so that when the next big wave comes, we don't have to just shut everything down. I think that this has been a severe economic shock, and I'm not sure that anybody wants to go through a second one of similar magnitude. And the four-day week can play a really big role in helping companies return to work safely and become more resilient. Return to work safely by allowing people to spread out the amount of time that they're in the office, to schedule things to reduce the number of people who are in the office at any one time, and therefore to turn offices from places that are super spreader events to places where people who work there and clients and customers can safely engage and feel secure about going to. More resilient because the work of figuring out how to do five days worth of work in four requires companies and requires people to think about just about everything about how they work. 
to use technology better, to think about how they spend time, to think about how they organize their days. And once you get into that kind of experimental mindset, it's actually kind of hard to turn it off. And what I have heard from companies that had already moved to four-day weeks before the pandemic started was that when we had to figure out how everyone could work from home or how we could deliver our services remotely rather than in person, yeah, you know, it was a challenge, but it was actually kind of a familiar challenge because we had already had to think about a lot of this kind of stuff. And when we made the transition, we had gotten smarter about our tools. We were more familiar with remote work. And so, you know, for us, this was not a dramatic shift. It was a challenge, but it was one that we knew how to meet. And I think that if we had more companies that were able to make that kind of transition, that were able to see something like a coronavirus pandemic or the next pandemic or the challenges of climate change, all of which we know are coming, if they were able to face them that way, then we would have more companies coming out the other side, healthier, stronger, functional, and we would have economies and you know workers and families who are in a much better place. And then I think the final thing I would tell bosses is that companies that move to four-day weeks see big improvements in recruitment and retention. They see improvements in productivity and profitability. Everybody talks about being healthier and having more work-life balance. And companies themselves become more sustainable places. And I don't know a founder or CEO who doesn't want more of those things. And the four-day week helps you get all of them. So that's what I would say. Mm, Brilliant. I love it. I want to put myself in the shoes of someone who is critical of this. What would you say to someone who says, well, actually, in our organization, we have a lot of factory workers or let's say, for example, care workers or people looking after the elderly, which is such an important role, but sadly underpaid. And a boss in that type of organization saying, no, it doesn't work for workers outside of the knowledge economy. Mm -hmm. What is your view on that? My answer is that actually it does work. It is surprising. And I did not expect to see this when I started this research, but probably a quarter of the companies in my book are actually restaurants. Right, places that traditionally are open, you know, six or seven days a week, where you know long hours absolutely are the norm, and where you know there is no remote work when you're a, a chef or a server. And likewise, I have a number of nursing homes, I have hospitals, factories where everybody is on sort of four day weeks, and the place is closed for three days. You have shorter shifts. And what turns out to be the case is that there are other savings that come when you move from a 40-hour week to, let's say, a 30-hour one to six-hour shifts that make up for the additional cost of hiring more people. So with nursing homes, for example, in the United States, certified nurses' assistants, the orderlies, the people who help residents get dressed, organize activities for them help them eat, do those kinds of really basic things. There are nursing homes in the US that now pay them for 40 hours worth of work if they do 30 hours and they meet certain conditions, right? They don't call in sick. There were a checklist of things that help the place run more smoothly. What they find is that paying people that extra money, of course, does mean that you're spending more on salaries, but you're saving enough because you don't have to pay recruiting costs 
you save because you don't have to you know call a temporary agency at the last minute and have someone come in at a very high rate in order to cover for a staff member you get higher quality of care measured by things like fewer falls fewer bruises lower use of psychotropic drugs patients with memory issues being calmer because they're seeing familiar faces day after day. So at one place, for example, the program cost about $140,000 in additional salary, but saved the home about $120,000 in other costs. So it still cost them a little, but the improvement in care was sort of dramatically higher. Likewise with factories, what they find is that in some cases, you're saving money by not having to start up and shut down factory lines five days a week. Some kinds of factories require it. The machines simply need time to warm up at the beginning of a shift. And so by eliminating that hour or two per week, lines can be more productive. It's also the case that for physically demanding work, you can do that more effectively in a six-hour shift than you can in an eight-hour shift. So my final example would be the Toyota Repair Center in Gothenburg, Sweden, where mechanics have been working a six-hour shift since I want to say 2013 or so, maybe even earlier than that. But it's been going on for quite a long time. And the mechanics there are on average 14% more productive than mechanics who work an eight-hour shift. Because they work six-hour shifts, the center itself can stay open for 12 hours a day, open at 6 a.m., close at 6 p.m., which means that more people are able to come in and drop off their cars before they go to work or pick them up afterwards, which is great for customers. It also means that the facility is actually smaller than some repair centers, but is able to get more done because Each one of the repair bays and the equipment get used more throughout the day. It's being used for 12 hours a day rather than eight hours. And so all of that together means that the mechanics are happier, customers are happier, and the center makes more money. So even in factory work, in places that you don't think of as creative or work that you don't think of as capable or as responsive to these kinds of changes... It turns out actually that it is. And we already have companies who have demonstrated that this is so and can give you some inspiration about how to do it yourself. Wow. That's so interesting. And the other thing I wanted to talk about briefly is just about the boundary setting, because Mm -hmm. that does seem to be a hurdle from an individual perspective. If you want to work four day a week, you do have to generally try to work four days a week rather than four days a week plus four evenings plus actually working half of your Friday off. What what are your views on practically how do you set boundaries? And even in your own life, do you set boundaries? Mm -hmm. This is a really interesting question. And the answer is partly cultural, partly practice. So the cultural stuff is twofold. I mean, first of all, many of us have internalized the idea that if we are passionate about our work, we should never really shut down. Or that modern life allows us to seamlessly move between being workers and being parents and that this is a good thing. In reality, you know, what technology allows is less a capacity to juggle these different things and to move work into blocks that we're able to pick up and put down through the day. And instead, it's turned work into this sort of 
fine powder that is now blown all over our schedules. Mm. And so the maintenance of boundaries turns out to be something that is a challenge for us at first. But when I ask people in places to move to four day weeks, how long does it take to overcome that sense? And a lot of people talk about, you know, at first it felt really weird because, you know, I was accustomed to doing 10 and 12 hour days and now being told that, you know, I had to leave after six just felt super alien and like I was breaking some sort of rule. And I asked them, how long did it take to get over that? And most of them say, eh, it took about two weeks. So that cultural conditioning turns out to be one that we can change relatively quickly. It's also the case that organizations have to change the way that they think about time and overwork and work. So as one founder put it, I used to think that overwork was a great thing. And what I realize now is that anyone can sit in a chair for 12 hours a day. Anyone can do that. The person who really impresses me is the person who can get all the work done that they need to in six hours and be out of there. That's the person who has focus, who has commitment, who actually knows their work. And that's the person who I am going to show to a skeptical client and say, do you want that person or do you want the person who needs three times as long to figure out how to solve your problem? I think the other important shift that happens when these boundaries move, when we cease thinking about good work as work that requires a lot of time and come to think of it in terms of performance, in terms of productivity, in terms of being able, setting a benchmark where success is not about working long hours, but rather it's about being good enough at your job to know how to do it in six hours rather than 12. That actually has a significant impact, not just for individuals, but also for how companies hire. So I have heard time and again that companies move from wanting people who can stay late at the office to wanting people who have great organizational skills, who know how both to collaborate, but also know how to shut the door and to really focus on things, who can be very task-centered who can be a little bit ruthless with their time and who value their own time enough to get the job done and get out of there at three o'clock, they start looking for a different kind of worker. In particular, in this market, working parents and especially working mothers become super valuable because they're the ones who already have all those skills, right? They're people who have often more experience than you know, a 23 year old who's been out of uni for you know for just a couple of years. They're people who want to go back into the workforce at the same level that they had before they left to have a child. They want the challenge. They often have a lot of skills that younger people don't, and they have a really, really clear incentive to make this work so that they can have lives in which they're able to do interesting work and also to be parents. And so what happens in these companies that work four-day weeks or six-hour days is that parenthood goes from something for which you incur a penalty to being something for which you can charge a premium. Mm. And that is one of the most unexpected but most significant changes that happen when companies move to shorter work weeks. That is absolutely brilliant. We'll just take a minute and sit with that because I think it's a big thing. Yeah, it really is. 
because so often being a parent is seen sometimes by the parent themselves as the hindrance and what you're actually saying in this context being a parent becomes one of the biggest assets that you can have in the workplace exactly no the notion that parenthood is incompatible with being a good worker the notion that working moms are by definition less committed to their jobs that's all a social construct it's all a product of the way that labor markets are organized today and the way that we think about time and productivity and the value of overwork and what these companies teach us is that all of those things actually can be changed they can be changed in relatively short order they can be changed at no cost to the company and at great benefit to everybody and i think what the pandemic has shown us is that those kinds of organizational and cultural changes are ones that companies and people are able to make much more rapidly than they ever thought possible mm, absolutely end of second rant no i it's so thought provoking i think i'm going to have to have a big discussion <laughs> with my partner you know whenever i have a podcast conversation that is particularly stimulating i then in the evening my partner has to hear all about it um <laughs> yeah no it's incredibly interesting so just to end on a practical note because we are sadly coming to the end of our time thinking about someone who is at work senior role but the organization doesn't want to move to a full four day week organization but he or she wants to move from five days to four days herself uh, or himself what is the first thing they can do next week or this week to start implementing that well i think first off you need allies because i think that figuring out how to do it for yourself is one thing but it's far more powerful if you do it with other people because it means that you are shifting social norms it means that you're not putting a target on your own back as being you know the one person who doesn't stay late it means also shifting the company culture in ways that provide support to you rather than create resistance to what you want to do so i think that the first step would be to start looking and documenting how people actually spend their time with an eye toward identifying time that can be eliminated from the schedule and given back to workers. So there are some wonderful studies done by people at Microsoft Research and elsewhere that suggest that knowledge workers lose an average of 2 to 4 hours of productive time every day in unnecessary meetings, in technology distractions, in other kinds of distractions. They lose it through trying to multitask and i think that documenting that kind of time loss is a great first step to understanding number 1 what stuff you personally would need to change and secondly showing to skeptical people within the organization that it actually would be possible to give time back to everybody without costing the company anything there are very very few enterprises that are running so effectively now that they can't already do this so i think that that would be the very first thing that i would do and then you know the second is really start looking for allies because you don't want to do this by yourself people do people can but you have to constantly fight organizational resistance and subtle but often significant cultural barriers around having to prove your continued productivity your continued loyalty to the organization this is why 
lots of parents who go to part-time talk about having to do even more work than they did before when they were working full-time because you have to continually demonstrate to your colleagues, to your bosses that you're still there, you're still working, you're still engaged. And that itself requires an awful lot of work. When you're able to move everybody else to a shorter work week, all of that extra labor becomes unnecessary. Nobody has to do it. And that is an enormously beneficial thing for everybody. So that's the advice I would give. Fantastic. That is excellent advice. Thank you so much for your time today. And where can people find out more about your work and your books? So the book is shorter and it's you know available wherever bookstores are sold. And then my company's website is strategy.rest. Rest is actually a top-level domain. So and I've got more information there about the kind of work that I do with clients. I'm also keeping track of developments in shorter work weeks in companies and government and education. So I'm essentially continuing the work of the book there. And then also on Twitter and Instagram, I am askpang, A-S-K-P-A-N-G. So that's where you can find me. Great. And I'm sure you've got a newsletter, which I'm going to find on your website and try to sign up because I really want to stay in the loop with all the interesting work that you're doing. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. That actually is great incentive to have a newsletter. <laughs> well, I when you do, right I will now, sign but, up. You know, it feels like maybe I really should. Maybe it's time to do this. <laughs> well, maybe as part of your four-day week, you are deprioritizing things that aren't essential and really focusing on the transformative stuff. And perhaps the newsletter isn't transformative as such. It's just for curious people like me. Yeah, well, wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much, Alex. It was uh, brilliant. And I look forward to continuing the conversation in another format in future. All right. Thanks very much, Verena. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening today. If you are looking to join a network of like-minded, ambitious individuals who are parents across sectors, then do register interest now on www.leadersplus.org.uk forward slash register interest. As you know, I do passionately care about spreading this message that it is okay to love your ambitious careers and it doesn't mean you don't love your children. And I want your help to spread this message even further. So I would love to make a difference to a thousand listeners by September. And if this podcast helped or inspired you in any way, then please take one moment to share it with five of your friends, perhaps tag them on social media to make them aware of a particular episode you, you liked. And you can also help by taking one minute to leave a review on your podcast platform. And of course, most importantly, subscribe to the podcast. It really makes a huge difference if you write five-star review. It helps with the visibility. So thank you in advance to everyone who's done that. Until next time, have a wonderful week. <laughs>